0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Biden administration has released a new Indo-Pacific strategy, and much is at stake with the acknowledgement that competition from China and climate change are of great concern to the United States and its allies. Here to pick through the strategy in a bit of detail, please be welcoming to the podcast, Associate Professor Beck Strating, the Director of La Trobe Asia, thank you for joining me, boss.
1: Thank you for having me, Matt.
0: We've just had this strategy released. So what were your initial impressions when you read through it and why is this like a long awaited document in the circles of your field?
1: Well, I guess I wasn't overly surprised about the contents of this document. I mean, it seems clear to me that the Biden administration really wants to get the message across two Indo-Pacific countries that the US is first, serious mm. about its commitment to the region, and second, that it wants to build this secure, prosperous, resilient region by building collective capacity with regional allies and partners. So it's focused on dealing with the contemporary challenges that you mentioned in the intro, the challenge of China and climate change, but also thinking about other challenges such as the pandemic, mm. uh, but dealing with those challenges in what the document describes as an aligned way. So I really see this as about selling US credibility, leadership, commitment to the region after the tumultuous years of the Trump administration, which had a kind of America first rhetoric, where there was a mixed messaging going on about the US's commitment to the region. This is the way for the Biden administration to try to distinguish itself from the Trump administration and to really try to reassure allies and partners in the region that it is committed, it is credible. And one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was the first section of the document, which really talked about the US as an Indo-Pacific power, um, talking about the importance of the region to the US. And to me, that signaled this idea that the US isn't just going to get up and abandon allies in the region, because actually the Indo-Pacific is of real importance to the United States.
0: Mm. But given the behaviour that you've seen from the US in the first year of the Biden administration, especially, is this a document that you could have essentially written yourself or were there any surprises there? Because we've seen AUKUS, we've seen the reaffirmation of the alliances that they've got in the region. And a lot of this seemed to be a kind of you know affirmation of what is already happening.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment of the document. There were no real surprises and a lot of the buzzwords remained the same Mm. uh, across the Indo-Pacific strategy documents that were released through the Trump administration and also by other states in the region. These are phrases such as free and open Indo-Pacific, strengthening or supporting a rules-based order, working with like-minded states. This is the kind of language that is really connected in with the Indo-Pacific concept, and we see all of that in this document. But we've also had clues from the writings of people like Kirk Campbell before he became known as the Indo-Pacific Tsar for, mm. the, for the Biden administration. Yeah. And I don't think that it really strays that far from the direction of the Biden administration. Uh, there's a focus, for example, on China. There's actually a few interesting things I thought about the way that China was cast. One of those is that the US doesn't want to change China. It wants to sort of shape China its operating environment. Uh, So it's not going to pursue regime change. And while there are challenges presented by China's rise and some of its coercive actions and aggressions in areas like the South and the East China Sea, uh, that there's also areas which the US can work with China. And climate change uh, and non-proliferation were two areas that were mentioned. So that kind of competitive coexistence uh, is something that was sort of promised, I guess, before Biden even came to power.
0: Mm. When you look at the document, most of the document does seem to be this is a reaction to what China's doing in the area this kind of thing will keep China in check. I'm almost mm. you know, talking about the, the subtext of the document. Yeah. yeah. It seems to be very much that agenda.
1: There's a lot of that going on at the moment, Matt, where state governments and people will talk about China or try to find ways of talking about China without directly talking about China. Mm. We see this in quad documents where there will be an allusion to security challenges without explicitly naming <laughs> yeah. the key challenges. And I've heard this a lot about the Indo-Pacific concept where people will say, oh, it's not about China. You know, it's about states in the region coming together to pursue, you know, a positive vision of security or prosperity or resilience or whatever it is. And I kind of go, no, it's about China. (laughs) Just because it's not named, I think we can safely say that that is the number one security challenge, not just for the US, but for allies and partners such as Australia.
0: Mm -hmm. There was quite a lot for America's close ally and BFF Australia, (laughs) uh, which is part of the Quad of United States, Australia, India and Japan, and also the newly minted AUKUS agreement. So how integral is the US-Australia relationship to the Indo-Pacific strategy?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. I think Australia is becoming increasingly important to the US vision of the Indo-Pacific. And I think the Quad and AUKUS are two arrangements or agreements or whatever you want to call them mm. uh, that that are often used as examples of the Biden administration's commitment to the region. And it's interesting in the action plan that is attached to the document, in the section on deterrence, AUKUS is really highlighted in that section. And the US says that it's committed to delivering nuclear-powered submarines to the Royal Australian Navy through AUKUS at the earliest achievable date. And I thought that was interesting that it has this sort of almost central part in the section on deterrence. And that's really about how do you deter or counter China's aggressions particularly in maritime Asia. And so AUKUS is this kind of example of integrated deterrence, which is a term that's used in the document, but it seems like nobody really knows (laughs) what that means specifically. It gets used a lot, but essentially that's around building collective capacity to deter and counter aggressions and illegal assertions within the region. And Australia, I think, plays an important role in that. Australia's geography is important as a kind of southern bulwark of the Indo-Pacific. But most importantly, I think, is that Australia has revealed itself time and time again to be a steadfast, reliable ally of the US. And this dependability, I think, is central in understanding Australia's role in Washington's uh, imagination. So one of the priorities, I think, uh, for any kind of US approach to the Indo-Pacific region is things like force posture and military basing. You know, the reality is, is that geographically, China has some advantages in that it is located in Asia. uh, And the US has to rely on partners to base troops or equipment in order to be able to be, you know, ready if there is conflict that occurs within the region. And Mm. that's been a tricky political issue in Australia about US military basing. But I think that we're going to see More of that issue come to the surface as the U.S. grapples with this issue of force posture.
0: So Biden's critics have labelled this strategy as a wall of containment around China. And we've talked about how, you know, the document will talk about China directly and indirectly, and and this is kind of part of it. So what has been China's response to this strategy? And what has been kind of like the wider reaction of of the global community to what this strategy is trying to achieve?
1: Yeah look uh, I mean from my perspective I would say that the wider reaction is a bit muted actually yeah I think it's welcome by allies and partners. There's nothing overly shocking in the document. I've been sort of tracking the social media and you do have foreign ministers who, you know, have come out and said this is a welcome move from the US. And there's two possible reasons why it's been a bit muted. The first is what I said before, that we already kind of know what key members of the Biden administration were thinking around the Indo-Pacific and that that tracks, that this document tracks with that thinking. Um, The second is that, you know, you've got this situation developing in the Ukraine and that I think is taking a fair bit of airtime away from this document. And so it it's sort of it's come at a at a funny time. You've got the U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken moving around the Pacific region, including the foreign minister meeting uh, in Melbourne for the Quad last week. So you could say this is an effort to try to remind Indo-Pacific partners that the Indo-Pacific is still the U.S.'s priority theater, because really, what states in the region worry about is that the US will get distracted in Mm. conflict because, you know, it has. I mean, it's spent the last two decades in the Middle East. Mm. And so trying to reassure allies and partners in the region that the Indo-Pacific is the priority theatre, is something that's quite difficult, and it's something that this document, I think, is is clearly trying to do. Now, China's not happy about it. Um, you know, the Global Times will come out and say that this is a containment strategy, um, that this is a trap of containing China under the guise of maintaining regional peace and prosperity, and interestingly. I was reading one report from the Global Times and there was a Chinese strategist who described it as a ridiculous attempt to join hands with a wide range of Asian countries who are reluctant to do so, except Australia. (laughs) And I do think, oh, that's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, China's never going to be happy about that, right? Mm. I mean, that's clear. But the really interesting part, the grabbed my attention with this document is the focus on India and supporting India's rise as a regional power, particularly in South Asia. And I think that will probably go down quite well in New Delhi.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting that America, the United States, has a really big challenge encountering China's influence so when the Global Times says something like that it's it's not unfounded the Belt and Road is making great in ways into the Indo-Pacific there's lots of countries there that are benefiting from bridges and stadiums and different building projects and hospitals and what have you and that's the sort of money that's thrown around that you don't see the United States doing in the region so you do have Blinken doing his uh, tour of the Indo-Pacific at the moment presenting the plan I imagine to a lot of uh, hearts and minds amongst the different governments so Do you think that there is an inroad here for the United States? I feel like that they're kind of starting very much on the back foot if they want to get much buy-in for this sort of plan.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the point that you make is really important. The fact is, is that the US hasn't really clearly articulated an economic strategy. And Mm. a lot of the competition and contestation occurs within the economic realm. And the Belt and Road Initiative is, you know, it's a geo-economic strategy. It, It combines political and economic statecraft. And the US hasn't And in this document doesn't really outline clearly a framework for regional engagement in economics, not just in terms of infrastructure funding, but also in things like rules around trading systems. There seems to be in the document a kind of promise that something is going to emerge from that. But the US exists outside of the CPTPP and outside of RCEP. These are sort of two important trading regimes that have developed in the region. And, you know, it's often the case with these high-level, big-sky documents that there's not a huge amount of detail in how a country plans to achieve its aims. Mm. Uh, It's been a criticism of the, the Biden administration that there isn't really a good economic plan for regional engagement. And I'm not convinced that this strategy document will allay those fears. Uh, But there does seem to be a suggestion that there's something coming.
0: Much of Biden's focus at the moment is inward into the United States. There's quite a lot of problems that they're confronting there with the COVID-19 pandemic, and he kind of struggles at the moment to enact any meaningful legislation uh, through the government. So how much of this strategy has been written with the domestic audience in mind? And and do you think it's more about that arena than it is about the Indo-Pacific?
1: I don't. No, exactly. But my sense is that it is really about the region, that mm. the audience is the region. And of course, the administration's top priority in 2021 was domestic renewal. And I'm not sure that the domestic audience is primary here. There's a couple of reasons for this. So one is there appears to be a kind of broad bipartisan agreement that Washington needs to increase or deepen its engagement with the Indo-Pacific. And this was something that even through all of the, you know, alliance free-riding rhetoric of the Trump was also present during the Trump administration. This kind of awareness that China is the big challenge. China is within this Indo-Pacific region and therefore the United States needs to um, deepen its engagement with its allies and its partners within the region. So there is this broad Consensus, I think, in Washington around China as a key challenge. While there's different views in Washington about how to compete, uh, you know, acceptance that there's strategic competition, but how to compete, there's sort of divergent views on that. And to that end, I mean, the Biden administration, as I said before, it's not seeking to change. China, it wants to shape the strategic environment in which it operates, uh, and that the US can cooperate in areas such as climate change, potentially. Mm. My sense is that it's not really domestic audiences that the strategy is targeting. It is distancing the Biden administration from the Trump administration for governments and for people within the Indo-Pacific. This Mm. is really about saying, we believe in the alliance system that we have created. We believe in the institutions of the Indo-Pacific. Because remember, you know, Trump administration withdrew from kind of key agreements like the Paris Agreement. That meant that it diminished some of the trust in the US as a leader globally Mm. and regionally. Um, So it's really about saying... We're back to normal and we really want to approach the Indo-Pacific in a way that is aligned with our partners and allies.
0: So we've already seen a few of the items the United States has completed in its first year, such as the AUKUS deal. So what do you believe will be the the next steps forward when it comes to enacting this strategy? Do you think that we'll see Biden go and have a meeting with Kim Jong-un or anything like that? On capacity,
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I want to predict uh, what's going to happen (laughs) on the Korean peninsula. But as I mentioned, the economic piece is something that the Biden administration really needs to keep a close eye on. And I think to develop an approach to dealing with economic competition Mm. uh, and to some of the kind of gaping holes in economic cooperation in the region. The fact that it exists outside of some of those trade agreements that I mentioned before, I think... It's a problem. The US needs to be at the table for its sake. Climate change is going to continue to be A priority of the Biden administration. And this is something that presents some issues for Australia. It's very clear from the document that climate change is a priority. There's a whole section on resilience and it tackles what we might consider to be non conventional security challenges, pandemic. Uh, But climate change is at the centre of it and Australia is really lagging on that. I'd also suggest that the Quad seems to be increasing in its significance. I was sceptical, and part of me still is a little bit sceptical about what the Quad is doing. But for the last year or so, it seems like the US is investing in that dialogue Mm. as a way of trying to deal with some of these security challenges, particularly maritime security, and to bring together India, Japan and Australia uh, with the US to manage and negotiate some of these pressing challenges.
0: Beck Strading, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe at any readily accessible podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They give us warm fuzzy feelings. You can follow us all on Twitter. Beck is at Beck Strading, and the podcast is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.